0: Well, it's uh, it's good to see you today, if uh, you're a guest. I'm David. I'm the pastor. You may have found out when they did a little stunt with the star up there. And uh, it's good to see those two guys have such a great sense of humor and and had the freedom to do that. They didn't realize that since the first of the month, they've been on double-secret probation. So I don't know if that goes well. Some of you get that, and some of you don't. Um, There was a time when there was Rome. And if you lived in the Roman Empire, Rome was all there was. And your life was centered around Rome. Now, at the heart of Rome was the emperor. The most famous emperor of all time is Julius Caesar. But the greatest and most important emperor was his adopted son. It was his nephew, uh, Octavius, that we know as Augustus. And Augustus rose up and made Rome greater than any other emperor ever would. Now, in time, the people would begin to want to worship Augustus, though he never sought that. But the emperors after Augustus would, would require or at least seek to some degree that people worship or at least revere them. Uh, you could worship your gods, be they Roman or, or Greek. You could worship your ancestors, which was common. You could worship whatever you want. But unless you were Jewish, you still had to honor and revere the emperor. Uh, you at some point would have to give worship to the emperor. Into the world of Augustus, a child was born. It's a very, very poor child. Came from the most humble of circumstances, born to a carpenter's family, and of course we know him as Jesus Bar Joseph uh, of the Nazareth. And in this child uh, who was born, would become the most famous person to ever walk the planet. Billions of people worship this man, Jesus, God in the flesh, who walks among us. In time, Augustus would be forgotten. Uh, except for historians who would know him, except for one little group, and one little kind of caveat on that, here would be a footnote, a footnote to the story of the birth of this child we know as Jesus. For Jesus came into the Roman world and changed the world. He changed the way the world could come to God. See, once there was a time when there was Rome, In Rome, was all that mattered until Jesus came, and then Jesus was the one who mattered. We're in a series to celebrate the birth of Jesus this December entitled, Born, Mary Had a Baby. In the last two weeks, we looked at the very doctrine of the virgin birth, of its importance, of the importance that God places upon it. And now for today and next week, and last week we were in Luke chapter 1, we're going to come today and next week to Luke chapter 2. And today we're going to come and look at the birth and see the significance of just the actual birth in Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. And here's what it says. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited of earth that was of Roman origin. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. in order to register along with Mary, he was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end so as we come to the message today here's the thing that i want you to get from this sermon the birth of jesus changed everything as he came into the roman world the birth of jesus changed everything and here's what matters his birth can change your life and that's really the story of christmas that the birth of jesus can change our life now um about 20 years ago when the internet and i know it's longer than that but when people really started getting on the internet a lot of things changed. Your ability to get information changed. You, you had access to information that most people didn't have access to before. When, when I first started off in ministry, when we came and we talked about the birth of Jesus, you know, there, growing up and then, you know, hearing the stories, you know, I kind of heard the same thing. Is I went to, to, to seminary and, and worked on my master's in doctrine on that you become aware, and just as a pastor, that there's a lot of different views out there, a lot of different controversies about the birth of Jesus. But for the most part, that was always kind of kept within academic circles. With, with the you know, coming to the Internet, and now we have so much communication, you have access to so much information. Now, when it comes to the birth of Jesus, there's a lot of things out there that can be somewhat disturbing. And so now when I preach about the birth of Christ, I have to deal with those. And so what I have to deal with, in essence, are myths, legends, and making stuff up which is what I'm going to talk about for the first part of my message before I ever get to the passage itself. Now, one of the things that happens when you go out there, you, you read and there are people who start talking about the, the things that the birth accounts of Jesus as if it's myth or that it's legend or we're the ones making stuff up. And, and so you begin to see all that. Uh, you know, most people will admit that Jesus was a real person, but they say when it comes to his birth that the early church made up the birth stories of Jesus, and they believe that. Because they don't think Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those people actually wrote it. And they certainly didn't write it when they did. They think the Gospels were written in the second century. And even though that's largely been proved false, that the Gospels were written about the time we think they were, and historically we've known them to be written, you know, around, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke around 60, and then John in the mid 80s to early 90s. We, we kind of know that. But still they say that. And so they say the church made up the stories of the birth. They'll say that the birth accounts and the lots of information kind of followed uh, Greek mythology or paganism. They incorporated stuff from paganism. And a lot of them will say that Luke just flat made mistakes that he erred. And they they kind of accuse us of of this making stuff up. And one of the biggest things you see today and some of the biggest controversy is actually about the date that we celebrate the birth of Christ, December 25th. And I see all the time, you know, Jesus wasn't born December 25th. The church just made it up, yada, yada, yada. And then, you know, Christians, we get all upset. Because we'll say, well, certainly he was born December 25th. And we kind of start fighting back. And here's the thing. This is why, this is kind of foolish. I don't know how to tell you this. Don't get mad at me. We don't actually know what day Jesus was born because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, none of those guys ever tell us. If you read the stories of the birth of Jesus, they never say anything about the day. They don't give us a month. It would have been nice. You know, if in, in, Luke, in Luke's account, he'd have said in the ninth month. That would have been the ninth month of the Jewish calendar. That would have been December. Or the month the kids left. That would have been what we call December they don't do that. Now, it doesn't mean they just make stuff up. Early, early in the life of the church, there were some of the folks who, who lived back there who kind of understood that Jesus was born in the ninth month. That was the tradition. The tradition came from the early church fathers, people who were really close to the source. And so there's actually great evidence to show that he was born on and around December 25th. I don't have time to get into all that. I wish I could, but you, just, you have to believe that while it doesn't matter, it doesn't affect our understanding of his birth, the best evidence shows that that's when he was born because that's when the early church was celebrated. Or not celebrated the birth so much, but they would talk about it. And so they begin to come up, though, that the church just kind of, you know, stole from it. I hear this all the time. You know, the church took from paganism the idea of the birth and celebrated the birth of Jesus. Now, there's no evidence of that anywhere. None. You're not going to find, no one's going to pull out a piece of paper and say, you know, early in the second century, the bishop of Antioch, you guys were talking they needed to celebrate the birth of Christ. They didn't know what to do, so they just picked a pagan holiday and said, we'll just incorporate that. That's never out there. Now, all, the, all the ideas that, that we took stuff from, from mythology and paganism is just made up stuff. That's all it is. I mean, you've got to think this through. The early Christians were Jewish, right? I mean, the early Christians were Jewish. Jews couldn't stand the idea of paganism. Paganism was an absolute anathema to them. There's no way a Jew, even a Christian Jew, would adopt anything from the pagans. And then the Gentiles, they came out of paganism. And then paganism would persecute the Christians. So why would Christians, who are being persecuted by pagans, adopt their celebrations into their own so they could still be persecuted? That makes no sense whatsoever. And so, you know, people just make this stuff up too. In fact, I would suggest to you that most of the stuff that's myth, legend, and just made up come from the people who oppose the birth story of Christ. The people who say that it's not real or didn't happen the way it did. A lot of times, they like to say, well, Luke made mistakes. Luke wrote two massive books, Luke and Acts. It's this huge two-volume. It's so important. And in those two volumes, Luke has dates, he has names, he has events, he has cities. And for the longest time... Our view was, the view of many people was, we don't have any outside evidence to support some of these places or some of these events. Luke must have just made them up. Because certainly people, 1900, 1800, 2000 years removed from the scene, were no more than Luke. That's just kind of crazy. I mean, I think about it in my own world. You know, sometimes I've had people born in the 90s start talking about music in the 70s. Some of you my age, you ever have to deal with that? All oh, you people in the '70s, man, all you had was disco. That's not true. We had disco. That okay, came in '70s. '70s was the golden era of rock. That's why it's called classic rock. It's the best. Unlike the junk you people listen to today. And we had, we. I know. I was there. I boogied. I did all of that stuff, man. I know it's go- You don't know what you're talking about. We know. My brother Greg knows. Greg was there. Greg made it happen. Greg lived it. So here's the thing. And that's the way. Luke was right there. Now, an the amazing thing happened. For, for, from the middle of the, you know, the 1700s, kind of to the middle of 2000s, they were always questioning Luke. In the 1850s, this guy was born named William Ramsey. He became Sir William Ramsey later on. You can Google him up. There's two Sir William Ramseys. One's a chemist. Forget him. We don't care anything about chemistry today. But the other one was an archaeologist he was a skeptic, but he was a New Testament scholar. And he started going on archaeological work all over the Middle East. And he and other archaeologists started discovering stuff. They just started discovering documents. They started discovering evidence that indicated that Luke was right about everything that they could find out he talked about. And they didn't see everything he wrote about. But whenever they found something that matched up to what Luke said, Luke was right. They never found anything to say that Luke was wrong. Nothing. Nada. Look it up. It ain't there. And so William Ramsey said this. Luke was probably the greatest historian of his era. And so by the middle of the 20th century, historians started saying, you know what? Luke's right. He's never been proven wrong. Now, why do I say all this to you? Because we live in a time and a day when it's popular to say that the account of the birth of Jesus is all about myth, legend, And making stuff up, when the truth is, it's the other group that makes stuff up. So let's just come and look at the birth of Jesus, because that's what matters. And when I think of the birth of Jesus, something kind of just pops into my mind. I'm a guy, I'm a pretty visual guy, and I picture things. And one of the things that that I just picture and feel is that when you read the birth account of Jesus, it has this, and here's the word I look at, authenticity to it. It just feels real. Now, I actually, in college, happened to be a study of history. I was a historian. I was part of actually a historian fraternity. I realized that oftentimes when I preach, I say I majored in something in college like political science and sociology, economics. Whatever message I need to have majored in, that's kind of what I lean on. You know? I've leaned in art, history, you know, economics. I even had a brief time where I dabbled in music. You know, but the truth is, my degree is in history. And here's the thing about history. There are certain things in historical documents that lead to authenticity. One of the things that leads to authenticity... It's when you have detail. And Luke has detail in his account. He talks about Augustus, Quirinius, he mentions Bethlehem, things that could be disproven. P- things people could say, well, that didn't really happen. He talks about angels singing, you know, he talks about shepherds going. He talks about later on about going to the temple and things happening, things that could be disproved. So there's great detail. There's also a certain degree of vagueness. For instance, Luke just says Jesus was born. He didn't tell us when. It'd have been nice if he'd have stuck a month in there. He didn't do it. Kind of like if Moses would have mentioned something about the name of a Pharaoh. Moses didn't do it. Those guys didn't help us out at all on this. But he talks about some vague things. We don't know how long Mary was there. And so the combination of Detail and vagueness gives it just a credible sense. I'm reading this. This seems authentic. And Luke says this. He says this. Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken throughout the entire inhabited earth, which really means the Roman Empire, because that's what we're talking about. And it was happened while Quirinius was governor of Syria. That's a lot of stuff. Now, we know from outside sources outside the Bible, and believe it or not, there are actually sources outside the Bible that talks about the history of that time, that they took census every 14 years. Now, we understand about a census. we got a census coming up in 2020. The Romans took a census also every 14 years. We know from documents they took one in 20 A.D. and they took one in 6 A.D. In fact, the one in 6 A.D. is even referenced by Luke in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verse 37. Peter and John, before the, uh, the Jewish legal uh, Jewish council that are signing what to do with him, Gamaliel stands up. He was the teacher of Paul. He's an easygoing guy, seeking peaceful resolution. And he mentions that there was a rebel one time named Judas the Galilean who rebelled during the great census. And the census that he rebelled in, we know, or the year that he rebelled was about 6 or 7 A.D. Then we know there was a census then. Now, you go back 14 years from 6, and you got 8 B.C., And so the evidence seems to indicate, even though we don't know for sure there was one in 8 B.C., that that makes sense. That kind of lines up with the birth of Jesus. Now, no, here it gets a little crazy. We think of B.C. as before Christ, before his birth, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. But Jesus wasn't born like in zero. (laughs) Jesus was born like in 4 B.C. How could Jesus be born 4 or 5 B.C. before Christ? It's because when, you know, they put the Gregorian calendar together centuries later, they made a couple of mistakes. There's a couple of typos in there. They got, you know, that happens. So he was born probably about five or six, which would kind of line up with when the census would be taken. So it took a while to get the census. And it mentions Quirinius. And people say, well, Quirinius, he was the governor of uh, Syria in 8 AD, I think. He wasn't even governor way back then. Luke Air, But Sir William Ramsey found out some documents that he, they discovered. That Quirinius was in Syria about 6-7 B.C. Working the head of the government. Now, the word governor just means to be in command. So Quirinius was in command of something. So here's what Luke tells us. Caesar issued a decree for a census. Which we know he did every 14 years. And Quirinius was in charge of that. Which makes sense because we know that happened. But this is not even the best part. The best part has nothing to do with either one of these two guys and what they did. The best part is what God is doing in this story. God is working through people who did not worship him to bring us salvation. Do you realize that? God is taking these two guys, Augustus, who one day people would worship, Corinnaeus, who's an absolute stone-cold pagan, and he's working through these two guys to help get Jesus where he needs to be to fulfill Scripture. Because in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So you come to Joseph. Joseph was from the tribe, the lineage of David, and he had to go to the birthplace of his David. It wasn't his personal hometown, but it was considered his home in order to register for the census, and he took Mary with him. Now, he, him having to go there to the register for his hometown for the census be like me going back to where my people come from, my home, which is San Antonio. San Antonio, Texas, let me qualify that. I found out since I moved here that some people think when you refer to San Antonio, it's San Antonio, New Mexico. No one outside of New Mexico has ever heard of San Antonio, New Mexico. <laughs> I one time said something about going home to San Antonio. Oh, uh, up the road in New Mexico? I said, no, man, San Antonio, the one and only San Antonio. Not San Antonio, New Mexico. Don't, don't be offended because it's, it's a beautiful little spot that I see quickly when I drive high, by, past it out the mirror or window there. But I'd go home, man. He had to go home. And he took Mary with him. And here's the thing. And this is how the beauty of the story. Because sometimes you'll read people say, well, why would Joseph make that long trip and take his pregnant wife with him? Well, for two reasons. One, Joseph and Mary knew that Mary was going to give birth to the Savior. They knew the scriptures that the Savior needed to be born in Bethlehem. So they took advantage of the census to get to Bethlehem. And then he took Mary because Mary's pregnancy was still a scandal. I mean, Joseph knew that the Holy Spirit was the father. Mary knew that, but no one else knew it. What were they going to say, hey, I know Mary's pregnant and we're not married yet, but that's okay. The Holy Spirit of God overshadowed her. No one's buying that. He's not leaving Mary there to face ridicule. He's taking her and they're going home or going back to the hometown area, Bethlehem. So they go. And Bethlehem's just outside of Jerusalem, so they head that way. And it says it was time for her to give birth to the baby. Now, you know, we normally think that Mary got there and she had the baby right away. But it doesn't mean it, just, it was time, time in general. That can be anything. A lot of you women have had have babies out there. Some of you have had three, four, five kids. Please stop at some point along the way from that. <laughs> and, and, and you know when it's time to give birth. Sometimes she'll talk to someone, when's it time to give birth? And it says, it's time now. Like you're five months pregnant. She goes, I know, it's time. I'm tired of carrying this kid. I mean, it could be time to give birth weeks before you actually give birth. We know that. So it was time. And so she rose, and, and it says, and their firstborn son was born. Firstborn son. We know it's going to be a son. It's the firstborn. Because there's going to be more. Now, I know we have some friends in other denominations that think this was the only child born to Mary, That she was a perpetual virgin. Doesn't ever say that. Scripture never says that. Matthew don't say it. Luke don't say it. Mark don't say it. John don't say it. Said she had more, actually. This was first firstborn. And, and, and she took him in her mouth and him, he put him in the manger because there was no room in the inn. And we all said, oh, the inn, man, they were so cold they wouldn't let her into an inn. Here's what she got a picture. Bethlehem's a little place. It's a little, big old place. They don't have hotels like we do. There's no Holiday Inn Express. There's, there's, no, there's no nice, you know, comfort inn. There's not even a Motel 6, you know. And I don't know about you. We don't stop at Motel 6. I, my wife, I stopped at Motel 6, my wife said, you asking for directions? Because we ain't staying here. You know, that don't happen. There's nothing wrong with Motel 6. No offense to the Motel 6 people. But they didn't even have that. And, and, and back then, you know, they just had a little room. We get a hotel room. I mean, we're going in there. What do you want? We'd like a, a, a presidential suite if we could, please. But a lot of places we stop don't have that. So we want a, we want a king-size bed, and, and we want a couch and a little fridge and a nice TV. And, and we, want the, we want all that. We don't want anywhere small. And whenever, whenever I travel, and I never stay anywhere in a room with, the only person I ever spent in a hotel room was Debbie. I don't, I, don't, I don't travel. None of the guys, I mean, we, we travel as a staff. I always get a room to myself. You know why? Because I'm the star of David. That's why. <laughs> Put that room. Where's those two knuckleheads who did that? I'll find you eventually. You better have someplace to go. Thank goodness you guys got wives we love deeply and children. That, I'll put six of those guys in a room. Well, oh, I mean, no, we don't do that. You know what they would do back then? You would get a room and you would share it with other families. It's like, can you imagine going up and you're staying over there at the Holiday Inn Express and say, okay, we got you in a room number 314 and there are two other families in there. No, 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 that's what they did. The hospitality mattered back then. And so most likely what the innkeeper did, did him a favor, did him a solid. He said, "It's too many people here and you're pregnant. And, and, and so here's what I'm going to do. There's a stable over here. And I know there are animals there, but it's, it's quiet, and it's warm, and that's where you're going to go. And that's where she had Jesus. If I was making this story up, I wouldn't have put it that way. If I was making this story up, you know, angels appearing to priests, and angels appearing to scribes, and Jesus was going to go to the house of the head priest in that whole area, or the head scribe, or head Pharisee, and give birth. No, we don't, you don't make up having a baby who's the saving the world born in a stable. Here's the thing you need to realize about the birth of Jesus. Why it's not myth, legend, and making stuff up. Luke gives an authentic and accurate account of the birth of Jesus. And here's the thing. It causes us to respond. The authenticity of the story of the birth of Jesus. That accuracy says, David, you've got to respond to that somehow. And I do have to respond. And so here's the thing that I want you to see. How do we respond to the birth of Jesus? How do we do that? I mean, we, you know, we've seen the last couple of weeks, the virgin birth, you know, Holy Spirit, supernatural conception, natural birth. You know, we've seen he's God, you know, he's, the holiness of God, he's man, the humility of man. Here we see the authenticity. So here's the thing I want you to see. Every one of us must decide how we respond to the birth of Jesus. You have to. Because it's there. You you know, you may think it's inaccurate or you may think it's inaccurate. Okay. You may believe it. You may not believe it. Okay. It's your choice. You may say, I think it's accurate, but I choose not to believe it. So be it. You may think, you know, I think it's kind of inaccurate, but I'm going to believe it anyways. Whatever. You've got to respond. Because here's the thing. This is so important. What you believe, what you believe about the virgin birth of Jesus will greatly impact your relationship with Jesus. What you believe about the birth, it impacts your relationship with him. Now, you you deny the virgin birth of Jesus. You can't really call yourself Father of Christ. Now, let me go back to what I said the last couple of weeks. The virgin birth, as I said this last week, I'm not going to go over it all. If you need to go back, if you weren't here, go see it online. The virgin birth of Christ was necessary for our salvation because God determined that it was. But it's not necessary that you believe the virgin birth in order to be saved. You don't have to believe the virgin birth of Jesus in order to be saved. The Gospel of Mark. Someone can read the Gospel of Mark and come to Christ as Savior. Mark's Gospel never mentions the virgin birth. The, all the sermons in Acts, people, thousands of people come to Jesus because of Acts. Never mentions the virgin birth. But once you are a follower of Christ and you have encountered the virgin birth as presented in Matthew and Luke, you're going to believe it. I mean, you're a follower of Jesus, and I presented it to you today, last week, you need to believe it, because if you say, I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't believe in the virgin birth, you're a Christian in name only. Because you're saying, Luke lied. Luke made it up. And that God revealing to us, is false. So what you believe, will impact your life. And here's part of the reason why. Because the holiness and humility of Jesus will draw us to him in worship when you encounter the story of his birth, and you, this guy came and changed the world, the holiness he 's God, and the humility of he 's man he came man for us, it draws us to him in worship we don 't worship because we choose to. We are called to worship. We may show up here because we choose to, but you can show up in a worship service and never worship. You can sing the songs. Then you can say amen to the message. You can give money, praise God if you do. But it doesn't mean you've worshiped. See, the concept of worship found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the New Testament word, proskuneo, means to come before and bow. It's to bow before. It's the, it's the idea of getting on your knees and taking your, your head and bowing into the ground. Please understand at Christmas, we're not worshiping a baby, we're worshiping a Savior. So when the angels came to the shepherds and said, I've got good news of great joy, for in the city of David has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. A Savior has been born, and they went to worship a Savior, not a baby. Matthew chapter 2, it's the story of, of, of the wise men coming, and I wish I had time to talk about it. I always try to work the wise men's story, if I don't actually preach from it, about it to work it in, but the wise men, and there weren't, there weren't three of them, you know, there were more than three. I mean, the wise men... Wise men travel in packs of a dozen or more, okay? Just I don't have time to go into all that. And they had had servants, and they would have guards. There's about 60 of them. And they came to the city of Bethlehem. a little town. And so there's this entourage of about 60 people. And starting with the oldest. The oldest would start first. They would come in, and, and they would just get on their knees, and they would bow before Jesus and worship him. In fact, they told Herod, we have come to worship him who is the king of... Of the Jews, not the baby, the king of the Jews. You see, when you realize who Jesus is, you're drawn to worship him, to give yourself to him completely. Christmas is a time not simply to attend a worship service, Christmas is a time to worship Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who is king. So here's the thing. Part of our response is this. When we realize the story of Luke, that authenticity of the story, the authenticity of the birth of Jesus, is a call to trust him. That's what Luke's saying. you got to trust him. All this stuff Luke has given us is so that we can trust Jesus. Not as the baby, but as the Savior. And see, Luke, Luke has more to write after the second chapter. He's got to get all the way to chapter 24. Chapter 23 is the cross. Chapter 24 is the resurrection. So here's the thing. The manger always points to the cross. And the cross is always completed by the resurrection. See, the manger always points to the cross. So what you have in this account of Luke is the birth of Jesus. It is pointing to something else. It is pointing to the cross. And the cross is always completed at the resurrection of Christ. This is why this is so important. Because if you're going to come and question the birth, you're going to end up questioning the resurrection. So why what you believe is so important. And for some of you, I, could, I know there's some here, you've never really trusted Christ to be your Savior. You may even believe in the virgin birth. You may even believe in the resurrection, but you've never said, Jesus, here is my life. I'm going to give it to you. And you're not giving your life to a baby. You're giving your life to the Savior. There was a time when there was Rome. Rome was all there was. And Rome represented the sin, the depravity, the evil. They worshiped false gods. They created these gods. Men proclaimed themselves to be the Lord of all who walked the face of the earth. He was born a common birth, who were sinful, lustful people. This was the world in rebellion against God. And Jesus came into that world to completely change everything. And He did. And if he can change the world of Rome, he can change your life. Some of you today need to accept that change. You need to take your life and you need to trust Jesus to be your Savior. You may have doubts. You may have questions. I get it. You still need to trust Christ to be your Savior. I've never had all my questions answered. I still have things I don't understand. But that's all right, because you can still trust Christ with your life. And so some of you can do that right now. In just a minute, we'll have an invitation. People will be standing here. Come and say, I want to give my life to Jesus. What a great celebration at Christmas. A lot of you are our followers. But let me ask you this. This Christmas season. Have you really worshipped him? I mean, just worshipped the Lord. Not sing a song. Not listen to a sermon. Not you know, watch something on television. I mean... Have you truly come before the Lord, whether literally or at least spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and bowed before him and said, you are the king of all kings. You are the savior of the world. And I praise and glorify you. You can do that now. You can do that during this time of invitation. You you may want to come and kneel here at a step. You can do that. You can do it where you are. While you're singing, you can do it within. Or maybe today you just say, you know what, I'm going to make this commitment that I'm not doing it right now because people are around, but at some point today, I'm going to go home, and I'm just going to worship Christ the King. You need to make that commitment. That's what Christmas is about. If you'd like to join our church, if someone happened in the last service, someone came and joined me, we'd love to have you. If you want us to pray with you about something, that's fine. Listen, whatever God wants you to do. I can't tell you what you need to do, but I know this. Jesus will change your life. Let him change you. Thank you, Father, for Christ, for our Savior, who died on the cross for our sins. It was real. None of that was made up. He came into the world of Rome, and he changed the world. praise God. He can change our lives if we just trust him. Help us take our lives, give them to Jesus. Help us, Father, worship him and honor him. Because this is what we're called to do. In the name of Christ, who is our Lord, for your glory and for your honor. Amen Amen. Would you stand? We'll be here at the front.